welcome to the Gospel Reverb Podcast. Gospel Reverb is an audio gathering for preachers, teachers, and Bible thrill seekers. Each month, our host, Anthony Mullins, will interview a new guest to gain insights and preaching nuggets mined from select passages of Scripture in that month's Revised Common Lectionary. The podcast's passion is to proclaim and boast in Jesus Christ, the one who reveals the heart of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now, on to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the latest episode of Gospel Reverb. Gospel Reverb is a podcast devoted to bringing you insights from Scripture found in the Revised Common Lectionary and sharing commentary from a Christ-centered and Trinitarian view. I'm your host, Anthony Mullins, and it's uh, my joy and delight to welcome this month's guest, Pastor Chris Breslin. Chris is the pastor of Oak Church in Durham, North Carolina, which is just a few blocks from my house, and we were introduced to each other through mutual friends, Jeff and Susan McSwain. Um, Chris is uh, somebody who's very involved in the neighborhood. He's involved in field education and precepting for Duke Divinity. He sits on the board of Housing for New Hope and has an upcoming podcast project in partnership with Christianity Today, which features Bob Crawford and Liz Weiss. He's also a Little League baseball coach, and they have a, a big game tonight for first place. And on top of that, and this questions this brings up the question of Chris's discernment. He's a Tampa Bay Buccaneer fan, but there's grace for that too. Chris, welcome to the podcast. And for those in our listening audience who may not know you, your family, your work, um, we'd love to know your story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, it's so good to be with you and to be part of this ministry and to be connected uh, initially through the McSwains and and now through Oak Church. Uh, so thanks for having me. Um, let's see. I don't think you can really know me apart from uh, my people. And so I am married to Rachel and I am the dad of four um, awesome kids, uh, Noah, Titus, Emmett, and Simeon. And so that is what a lot of my uh, time and attention is taken up with and also uh, ministering among neighbors here in the Lakewood neighborhood of Durham, North Carolina. Um, by the time this uh, podcast gets out, um, I think I'll be a couple months deep in a sabbatical uh, that I'm right now just a couple days away from. So uh, if if my brain is a little scattered, it's because I'm doing all of the, you know, setting the thermostat and, and passing off mm. uh, duties to be uh, away for a little while. But I'm really excited about that time. Yeah, we're excited for you. I had a chance to listen to Rachel talk about the gift of sabbatical from the church to, to your family and how beautiful that is. So um, I, for one, am in prayer for you that it would be a time of rich renewal for you and your family. You know, before we dive into the four Bible passages for this month, I want to ask you a stack question. <laughs> this is my way of trying to shoehorn a lot into one question. So, Chris, what music are you enjoying these days? What book are you reading? Or maybe what book has had the greatest impact on you recently? And then what drew you into planting a new church? Oak Church was a church plan. I think it's been in existence for about seven years now. Uh, what prompted that? Ooh, that is a stack question. And, one, <laughs> and I love every part of that question independently, and I love it all together. So, oh, man, music. Oh, I... Currently, um, I'm listening a lot to a new album by the Ar by Arcade Fire. Um, mm. uh, it's yeah, really great. They have a an album called We, and I, I've been a fan of that band for a long time. And 
if if you don't know them, um, Google and search for their um, recent SNL performance. And okay. they did their song uh, Unconditional. And they have like those crazy, um, they're at like car dealerships, the, the, the guys that kind of blow all over the place and are, are kind of like <laughs> yes. jellyfish. Yeah. Um, as part of their SNL show, it's, it's like the coolest lo-fi uh setup stage setup i've ever seen so i'm really enjoying that really enjoying a record by the branchettes which is this Hmm. gospel group um out of long branch north carolina and in um johnson county and um some uh durham friends actually like went out and were their house band and recorded an, an album called stay prayed up and made a documentary that is uh, just premiering this month, and uh, it's like old school North Carolina gospel music. Stay prayed mm-hmm. up by the Branchettes. That's <laughs> that, that is where I'm at right now. It's awesome. Okay. So, yeah, I could I could go on and on. Um, uh, of a friend from Charlottesville, uh, Paul Zach came out with a album called Sorrows Got a Hold on Me. It, like I think he self describes it as sad church songs, which mm-hmm. is a great genre of music. Um, so that's what I'm listening to. Um, and then I just finished a couple days ago, just a a whole of 2022 deep dive into this series of books by Andy Root. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know, Andy, he is uh, a professor, um, in St. Paul, Minnesota. I think he's at Luther seminary and yes has done a lot with youth ministry and Bonhoeffer, but I, in this year I've read through all four of his ministry in a secular age books, just like consecutively back to back. And he's dealing a lot with, uh, with Charles Taylor and his, um, secular age, uh, thesis and what it means for ministry, for faith formation and pastors and congregations. And the most recent one was churches in the crisis of decline. And he does a lot of stuff with Bart's biography and his work. Um, and it's, it's wonderful and inspiring. And I'm not sure I've, especially the, the last book, the orange book, I'm not sure I've really read someone doing theology in like a narrative way that he's doing it. It's really mm-hmm. exciting and dense and challenging. Yeah, and Andy. Yeah. Andy was requ- uh, interviewed by Grace Community International for your included um, video podcast, Insights on Theology, and he dives into Bonhoeffer and Bart quite a bit. And I took a master levels course on called Trinitarian Youth Ministry. And, oh, cool. And, yeah. you know, re- revisiting relational youth ministry was a sweet spot for him. I haven't read his latest work, which you're, you're referring to, but I cannot wait. He's, oh, it's he's so a good. Fabulous and, uh, yeah, I've, I've been talking about it nonstop uh, to anyone <laughs> that'll listen and some that won't. So, yeah. Um, so, about seven and a half years ago, um, we uh, started a church, and that that was a vocation that I, I hadn't really anticipated. Um, uh, I I grew up Roman Catholic, so starting churches isn't really like something you do. Um, but I think the the rootedness and the locatedness of 
of like the Catholic parish has really um, played a big part in my imagination for how to do church in this place mm-hmm. over a long period of time with a wide array of people. And so um, that was part of the imagination and part of the calling. And um, we've really been motivated by uh, scripture from Isaiah 61. That's where we get our name, Oak Church, Oaks of Righteousness for the display of God's beauty. And so, you know, we were doing some of the things that you do when you start um, an institution, like try to hammer out mission and vision statements and all that. And it just, those things kind of felt too small. Um, if you've seen Jaws, it's like they say, we're going to need a bigger boat. Like that, that's, kind of, that's kind of how it felt. And so we we stumbled across that scripture and it really gave us um, a vision. And of course, it was also Jesus's inaugural sermon vision of good news to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted, um, et cetera. And that has been such a, a lively imagination for us to embrace in this place. Um, Lakewood is a really diverse neighborhood of Durham. Um, really, di- Durham is in general, but um, by starting in one neighborhood, in one place, I think it's it's given us um, an imagination for, for what ministry could be like, and it's, it, it's really helped helped us focus on uh, learning how to become neighbors um, and doing that, you know, over a period of time where there's, you know, you're encountering things like uh, massive um, change and new people coming to our area and gentrification and violence and, you know, especially all of the things of the last five years with um, politics and COVID and all of these things. And so, um, we we have plenty of work to do just in the little corner of Durham that we're tucked into, so we don't need to spread out too much. Um, and we've also been given exactly what we need for this work uh, by God in this place, um, and that's people resources, that's you know financial resources, that's emotional and spiritual resources. So that's that's the work that we've been doing um, that we hope to be doing for a long time. Well, I'm grateful for what the Spirit has led you to. And as you talk about place, Chris, I, I hear echoes of Eugene Peterson and Wendell Berry, you know, just the sacredness mm-hmm. of the place where God has called you. That dirt matters and the people that yeah, occupy right. that space matters. So good on you, man. Well, it's time. Let's get on to the four passages we're going to unpack together. The first one is Luke chapter 12, 32 through 40. It's called Fear Not Little Flock. It's for proper 14 in ordinary time, which is August the 7th. Then Luke 12, 39 through 56. Be ready. Proper 15, August the 14th. Luke 13, 10 through 17, missing the point. And hopefully this podcast is not missing the point. Proper 16, August the 21st. Then finally, Luke chapter 14, verse 1, and then 7 through 14, humble hospitality. It's for proper 17, August the 28th. Let me read the first pericope, Luke chapter 12, 32 through 40. This month, we're going to focus on the New Living Translation. It is the Revised Common Lectionary Passage for proper 14, August the 7th. So don't be afraid, little flock. For it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to those in need. 
This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old, and they don't develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Be dressed for service and keep your lamps burning as though you are waiting for your master to return from the wedding feast. Then you will be ready to open the door and let him in the moment he arrives and knocks. The servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them, put on an apron, serve them, and they will sit and eat. He may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time, for the Son of Man will come when least expected. Verse 32, Chris says, it gives your father great happiness to give us the kingdom. So how are you? How can we? experience this inaugurated kingdom, which is so joy provoking for the father to give to us. I think, I think first and foremost that that it, (laughs) that that is the like origin and destination that that is like the baseline of reality is God's delight that, that God fundamentally desires to give us the kingdom and that it gives God great happiness or delight is (laughs) <laughs> I, I I think we forget that all too often, that that is the most real thing there is and that that is where our joy can come from, um, that we don't need to muster it or that we don't have to have like the right techniques to mine it, that it's just right there. That's, that's who and that's how God is really makes a difference. And, you know, like we alluded to it earlier, my, my, ministry is in the neighborhood. And so um, starting with that baseline, I think makes you a different sort of neighbor. It makes you a different sort of minister. Um, for one, you know, this, this is a long, a long game that we're engaged in. And so if, if I'm not starting and ending with God's joy, if I'm starting with some sort of displeasure or uh, an idea that, that things can be better, must be better, rather than than just the the delight in you know you mentioned Eugene Peterson in the isness of the place and of the people. Um, that I think that's where burnout comes, and that's where you know kinds of ministry that wind up being violent or being depersonalized happen. And so I think starting and ending with with joy that originates in God is, is important. Like, again, I've been immersed in Bart for, for the last couple of weeks in that book. And like Bart is, is a, a joy theologian. He, he mm. says, yes. he, he says uh, actually a theologian that labors without joy isn't even a theologian at all, you know? Preach, um, yes. So yeah, I, I, I think just recognizing and, and reorienting to God's joy um, makes all the difference. Yeah, I don't know if it was Bart, but I remember somebody writing, um, joy is the serious business of heaven. Yeah, that's right. And it's the serious business of earth, is it not? I mean, 
the thing is, it's it's like you said, this is who God is. Out of the overflow of Father, Son, and Spirit, joy is not something we create. It's it's his idea and it's good. And yeah, uh, and and it's not even it's not even like the byproduct. It like it is the the raw ingredient, you know, like it's, it's, it's on both sides of the equation. Like, I I think if, if we only make it into the byproduct, we, we start to feel really uneasy or upset when, when things, um, don't seem joyful, you know, um, Mm. uh, or, or feel pressure, pressure to make it that way. Yeah. Let me ask you a personal question, Chris. Have you sold all your possessions? <laughs> Are you taking the Bible literally? Oh, uh, you know, goodness. so I, I just want to give you a chance to rift on this. I mean, it's easy just to go ahead and say, well, Jesus didn't mean that, so there's nothing really to say, but that that's not true. So give us a Christological, gospel-shaped orthodoxy and orthopraxy as it comes to this passage. Hmm. Yeah. Um my congregation gives me a hard time because I often use the common English Bible translation and, mm-hmm. and that shares my initials. And so, uh, they're like, <laughs> you know, is this, this is what he's saying, or is this, the, you know, the serious work of Bible translators, but the CEB, um, talks about wallets that don't wear out. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of like that turn of phrase. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting that, the kind of hoarding impulse and fearfulness and attachment um, are are connected to joy, um, you know, kind of that set in contrast to God's joy. Um, that generosity and open-handedness are are connected to joy. It's almost that as if like closing down or holding tight um, has become our natural state. And really, I, I think this is trying to say that that is an unnatural state for us to be in. Um, yeah, like, that's, that's yeah. well said. Like yeah. generosity begets generosity and it's originally God's generous generosity toward us. I mean, he's the generous one. And so it only makes sense as human beings that this is what life should look like. And I love what you said, that it, it actually is the work of joy. Um, it's like we know it's better to give than to receive, but in God's good economy, we we get both. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have right. received that's so right. much. Yeah, why wouldn't we share? Yeah, it's it's you know like uh, there's great irony that um, you know among Western Christians, like we've we we've made we we've fallen into the trap of making you know christmas the the main time that we give and receive <laughs> gifts and, and and so it's you know really fun and and we i mean we participate in that and we do some version of santa and saint nick and all this stuff but it's like that should be so so normal for us that that um that world of giving and receiving that you know, Christmas is is just like one of many days of 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 that feeling and that joy of of giving something to someone and the thoughtfulness that went into that and the resources that went into that and and and, and just like uh, I don't know, just like what would it look like? And I, I think this parable is is um, challenging us. Like, what would our what would our lives look like if? if if we, you know, reorganize them to be like 
pass through lives, you know, lives where, where things pass through, um, from God to the world, you know? Hmm. Well, speaking of that, what, and this may be a, feel like a loaded question because <laughs> it can take so much shape, but what does it look like to be ready for the son of man's appearance? Is all of this work together based on what we've already said, or is there something more to it, Chris? I mean, when, when you say like the, the son of man's appearance that has such like baggage for so many people, you know, mm-hmm. so it takes a lot of imaginative juice to reform a question like that, to do some positive work. Like a lot of my, we get a lot of folks uh, at the church that come from like evangelical or fundamentalist backgrounds that, like have heard that the question that you just asked, what does it look like to be ready for the son of man to appear that gets mobilized towards a decision, you know, it gets kind of weaponized. Um, um, and so, yeah, to try to re-ask that question in a way that is uh, expectant and prepared and open Mm -hmm. to God showing up, um, the, the message paraphrase uh says like keep your shirts on and keep the lights on <laughs> <laughs> we're like motel six we'll keep the light on for you when you show up jesus yeah that's right <laughs> um but you know the the passage has kind of two two images like uh, a wedding and a thief you know the <laughs> it's it's so fascinating to use like a really maybe stressful but generally positive thing like a wedding you know um uh, and learning, uh, learning to 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 prepare well, to do all of the the inviting and the the the, the gathering uh, for a celebratory event, but also to the you know to prepare well to be secure um, to, yes. to to greet God's arrival as a thief in the night, you know. Um, and so I don't know there. The, in there there's some difference between alert and alarm like i think we can only survive in a state of alarm for so long um that that this passage and jesus in it are calling us to just a state of being alert uh, a state of being ready and open and expectant um both for for the the good and the bad of, of what it might mean for god to arrive in our lives for the ways that we have them currently arranged yeah, I appreciate the way you said it, the expectancy or anticipation of of his appearance. It's like when a dear friend or a loved one comes to your home, you're, you're excited. That, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and you prepare for them. You you know, you want to care well. And um, I, I think um, part of our, your good work in ministry, Chris, uh, I think what we're trying to accomplish denominationally through a Trinitarian perspective is to, to kind of invert the way we've thought about these passages. Like um, we've got to be afraid when we can just rest in his assurance and be about his business as we go and all will be well and all will be well and all manners of things will be yeah. well. Yeah, that's right. Let's move on to our next passage, which is Luke chapter 12, 39 through 56. It is the revised common lectionary passage for proper 15 in ordinary time which is August the 14th. Chris, would you read that for us, please? Sure. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, 
because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think he will. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom the master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will take a long time to come, he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and to get drunk. Then the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect, and an hour that he does not know, and he will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many blows. But the one who did not know it and committed acts deserving of a beating will receive only a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you think I have come to provide peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say a shower is coming and so it turns out. Whenever you feel a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how is it that you do not know how to analyze this present time? Wow, that's a mouthful. Uh, A big pericope, and what is going on, Chris? I mean, Jesus just told us not to be afraid. And yet we're reading about unfaithful servants being cut into pieces, banished and punished severely, whereas faithful servants will be rewarded. It's easy in our fallen imaginations to go to this place where, oh, man, am I in or am I out? Am I getting beaten or not? What What's really going on here? Well, first, I love Peter's question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, and, and I think it's notable that he says, he calls Jesus Lord because every time in Luke's gospel, you know, uh, Lord is is a identity for Jesus that kind of shifts and change and ter- changes in terms of their understanding of what that actually entails. So, mm. um, but Peter asks Jesus, "Is this parable for us <laughs> or for everyone?" <laughs> and Jesus is like a method actor here and stays in character. Uh, I always think of Daniel Day-Lewis when I think of a method actor and, and, you know, answers him like, and I'll spare you all the there will be blood voice. Right. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, uh, you know, he says, he he says that um, you must be wise, faithful, and that you must serve food, (laughs) 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 which which is, you know, 
Um, really fascinating. Ro- Robert Farr Capen, who is one of my favorite commentators, especially for the parables, because he yes. makes sense of these really kooky parables and sometimes violent and disturbing ones. He applies those three things to the preacher, saying that in addition to becoming faithful people, like people cultivating faith and fidelity, and um, in addition to also like not just acquiring info, but wisdom, he says, Jesus expects preachers in their congregations to be nothing more than faithful household cooks. <laughs> he says, <laughs> not gourmet chefs, not banquet managers, not caterers to thousands, just, he says, gospel pot rattlers who can turn out a decent nourishing meal once a week. Not even a whole <laughs> meal, perhaps, only the right food at the right time. So if you come on this passage, You've been working through Luke and you can't like skip to the other lectionary passage. Just be a gospel pot rattler and turn out a <laughs> decent nourishing meal. Okay. Capon's the best. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> oh, he's the best. Um, yeah. To answer your question though, man, I think when, whenever, whenever I feel, you know, disturbed or stuck, I try not to move through that too fast because that might actually be part of the point. Um, mm-hmm. I think parables are meant for play. And so um, th- I think that also means that, <laughs> you know, um, that they should be interpreted with more than one person present. Um, so what do you think, Anthony? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, no. No. Uh, no, but so so especially passages like this and, and these parables, like, you know, if you're just sitting in your study, you know, just churning over and over, it's like bouncing a ball off of a wall instead of like the, the kind of sparks that happen when you're interpreting with others and coming at it from a different angle or even experiencing different triggers and problems or seeing different images as operative. And so, so I think that's, that's a helpful like hermeneutic tool is, is reading with others. Um, we, we do this a lot. We have midweek morning prayer on the front steps and, and we, we kind of chew over these passages and it's amazing the sort of group insight you get, um, to a passage like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think good. here, I think here though, I think Jesus is like channeling, like Flannery O'Connor telling serious and grotesque stories to wake us up and remind us of the weight of things, you know, like, um, it takes different things to wake different people up. I I have four, four kids and some, some, uh, you know, my, my eight year old is awake at five 50 asking to watch baseball highlights. And my (laughs) six year old needs me to like, turn on the lights and rip her sheet off and maybe even pour cold water on her to get up. So <laughs> it takes, it takes different things. So that's not to say Jesus doesn't mean it or that we can just dismiss it as hot rhetoric, but you know, um, Jesus, Jesus is saying serious stuff in a serious way. And in doing so, I think he's probably channeling the prophets, you know, the, um, and so, the prophets aren't aren't just like purely future fortune tellers. They're not like crystal ball type people telling determined futures, but they 
they are like truth-telling go-betweens. They, mm-hmm. they are calling people back to God and making plain consequences for actions that may happen. And so like in a prophetic imagination, there's, there's almost always time to change, you know, like the, yes. the, the, the best prophets really hope they're wrong. <laughs> and so I, I wondered if that's maybe a little bit of what's going on here that Jesus is, is putting it in stark terms. So they have time to recalibrate and repent and return, you know, um, like his goal is not necessarily to, to scare them, um, uh, but, but to bother them. Um, so, yeah. so I think you can be bothered inside of be not afraid, you know? Um, yeah. Well, I appreciated what you said about the community coming together around scripture to read it and how enriching that is because that's how it was done. <laughs> it was read in yeah, community right. and, um, so there's that safeguard. And also I think we, you know, Jesus himself on the road to Emmaus said to the brothers, you know, that, that, that what you're talking about, that's about me. And so yeah, right. when we come to a passage like this, I, at least I found it helpful when I don't always understand is like, okay, um, spirit, remind me who God is, who is the yeah, father, who is the right. son. And we're included. Humanity's included in that father son relationship in the spirit. And so he's not opposed to us, but just like a good parent, like you would do with your own kids, you'll warn them if they're about to, you know, do something that's going to cause harm to themselves or others, right? You're going to shout out. And that may feel pretty rough when it comes, that's right. but yeah. uh, we know his heart because it's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so this will feel like a silly question after just stating that. But my question is this, is Jesus the great divider? I mean, what's he's, he's the prince of peace, full embodiment of peace, but uh, you know, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law and, you know, what's, again, what's going on here? Well, again, like, I think this is Jesus with this prophetic voice and office. And so I think of, you know, like, um, like the prophet Jeremiah saying, like decrying the people that cry peace, peace, where there is no peace. <laughs> so, so, so maybe, maybe Jesus identity in this instance is the prince of, of, you know, not the prince, the prince of peace, peace, where there is no peace, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so I, I don't, I don't have a great answer here, but I know my own impulses, you know, I'm, I'm a nine in the Enneagram, which I guess is like a very synthetic person and, sympathetic person and so i have these impulses towards peacemaking and non-confrontation and even those things can get can get weaponized um and so um yeah i i I think i think we we trust jesus when he um is dividing or like setting people on different sides of the room to look at this from different directions um i also again like i I think it's really important to to hear echoes from other parts of scripture. And and so I I think he's, he's definitely using language. I'm pretty convinced he's, he's using language from Micah seven. that says, you know, the day that God visits you has come the day your watchmen sound the alarm. Now is the time of your confusion. And then uh, further down in that chapter, it says, a son dishonors his father, a daughter rises up against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. And so he's 
you know, um, talking about talking to and about, you know, a divided group in his myths and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not even necessarily sure he's the one doing the dividing. He's just revealing the divisions that are already there. Yeah. Nobody wants to be called a fool especially by Mr. T or Jesus in this case. <laughs> well, and, and so, yeah, I'm, I, you know, I think it's, again, it's always important that Jesus is our, is our rubric here for someone who, you know, even though in this passage he is dividing, like in his very body, he's, he's putting the world back together. He's, mm. he's making it whole. Yes. And so... In, in doing so, he, he repels not a few people, <laughs> you know, like um, he disappoints a lot of people. He meets opposition. Ultimately, like they they kill Jesus, you know. Yeah. Um, it's a reminder that every time we, we gather around the table and share in communion, um, which is a whole making meal that remembers us, that like puts us back together and draws us into God's shalom, it has come through the taking blessing breaking and gift of Jesus's body that was broken apart and 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 puts us back together every time uh we're we're gathered around him so like mm-hmm. the, we we should in some some ways like have a level of understanding and comfort whenever there is this breaking apart because because Jesus has, has shown us how how a breaking apart is involved in a putting back together in, in, in a, a rending for a, a mending, you know, a rending for a mending. That's well said. And I love the way that you said the communion table, the Lord's table, it is, is a remembering of all of us together. And it's also, uh, I've heard it said a recognition or recognition, a re minding yeah. <laughs> of who he is and who we are in him. It's a, what a beautiful thing. Well, let's move on to our next passage, which is Luke chapter 13, 10 through 17. It is the Revised Common Lectionary passage for proper 16 in ordinary time, which is August the 21st. Now, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who, for 18 years, had had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent over double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her. Immediately she stood straight up again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue leader, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days a week during the week where work can be done. So come... So come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does each of you on the Sabbath not untie his ox or donkey from the stall, lead it away to water it? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this restraint on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. In his effort to be right, lawfully, it seems, it doesn't just seem, the the synagogue leader is getting it all wrong. Chris, so my question for you is this. 
is there something for us to think about, any parallels to maybe how believers are acting today? How might we, in an effort to be right, be getting it wrong? <laughs> this is only an hour-long podcast. Loaded right? question, yeah. sir. <laughs> um, I, I actually reading this uh, thought about a, a poem by a Jewish poet, um, uh, uh, Yudah uh, Amakai, um, wrote a poem called From the Place Where We Are Right, um, if you'll humor me. It says, from the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow. And a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. And so I just, I love that poem because it, and, and I love that poem, how it kind of sparks off of this passage, because, you know, in your question, you, you ask, like, they are trying to be right. And um, in some ways, like, that's, you know, really commendable to, <laughs> to try to be right. Like, um, it's, I think, you know, Pharisees, synagogue leaders, uh, the, the people who often um, directly encounter and and serve as foils to Jesus like I think I think most church people have way more in common with them than Jesus mm. <laughs> in our impulses and practices and yeah. you know um and so so first off maybe that's that's one thing we should we should get used to being um in that role of the of the story and and being you know encountered by Jesus in, in a way that reminds us that we're not 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 just not always right but often not right um but i I love that poem because it it reminds us that like where we are right where we we circle and circle the wagons where we just kind of stay in one place we trample the ground so much that nothing can ever grow no flowers Mm -hmm. in the spring um that is hard and trampled like a yard instead of like churned up and verdant like a garden um and so just um i think that that this is this is our this is kind of our like camel needle for like american christians like uh to to be the sort of uh of people like it's it's really hard for us to be not just right but righteous to be to be just to be true um I, whenever I read um, "to be right," I I think of like the etym- etymology of righteousness in the Bible, like dikaiosune um, in the Greek, and and I love I think to to get a, a, a fuller picture of that or a, a more rounded version of of what that means is not just like some sort of static rightness, but it, it is this really dynamic deliverance when 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 god is righteous it is fundamentally liberative like this is like paul's you are you are now free to be free like you're free for freedom like uh you are righteous for the sake of something um and so in this passage 
like they have good concerns about being righteous and being right about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is so important, like ceasing to be with God um, is really important. It, it's one of the things that constitutes a whole people. Um, but in their ceasing, they, they've lost an imagination for how that they can still take up and embrace. They can cease and embrace all kind of in the same space and at the same time. Their, their righteousness and our righteousness has to be more concerned and bound up with God's, God's liberative work than our rightness. Like we, we, we need to find freedom in that, uh, I think. Yeah, I've heard you use the word imagination three or four times. And in thinking about this pericope in sacred prophetic imagination, I think one of the things that stunts our imagination is dualism, where it's just either or, it's yeah. this or that. And you see it all over American society right now. You're either on this side or that side. And it doesn't give us the space to humbly learn and to move more rightly into liberation by the spirit. I, I just think there's, you know, in asking that question, how we, may we be right, but all wrong, boy, you're, you're right. We, we could spend days <laughs> talking through that. Don't yeah. you think? Well, and, and, and to, to go back to the poem, he says, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, mm. a plow, you know, yeah. the, the doubts and loves. So something, that finds us that we don't necessarily welcome like doubt and something so basic uh, to us, like our, our loves, our desires, you know, the way that we are oriented to the world, dig up the world like a mole or like a plow, like a pest or like something that we set our hands to and intend. And so, you know, the way out of this sort of hardness of heart you know i I think of like pharaoh or (laughs) um name your local politician right Mm -hmm. um can the the antidote to that is uh, you know doubts and loves that dig up the world like a mole a plow um you know yeah so this woman that has been identified had been living with an affliction for 18 years and jesus spoke words of life He was the embodiment of life. He touched her with a healing embrace that ultimately would change her life. So I'm curious, in what ways can we actively participate in that healing ministry of Jesus by the Spirit? So I mentioned how when we started the church, how we um, embraced and were kind of named by the Isaiah 61 text and, and to kind of put some, some handles and, and kind of watch words around that we, we came up with, um, we kind of extracted like hope, healing and hospitality in Christ. And those seemed to kind of sum up some of the, the prophetic vision of Isaiah and, and the words of Jesus. And I think the middle one healing was the most kind of uncanny thing for us to try to get our heads around because, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what do yes. you mean you are a healing church? Mm. Um, uh, not that kind of church, right? Uh, <laughs> um, yes. But it, 
over the years, and this hasn't happened automatically, and, and sometimes it happens in spite of us, but, um, you know, when I, we, we live in, in a really transient area that a lot of people come here for a little time for grad school and then leave and, you know, you'll, you'll touch base with people or they'll send you an email or around church homecomings and anniversaries, you make contact with people you hadn't heard from a while or who have some distance from you. And, and a lot, uh, we're, we're getting a lot of people saying, you know, being at Oak church was, was really healing for me. Um, and, and people using that language. And, and so, um, it's been interesting that that has happened and is happening and we're trying to, you know, um, figure out how God is doing that. And so, I think part of that is is making space and being responsive and and you know trying to culti- cultivate a a church culture where things can be different. Like this lady comes to Jesus, probably not with a whole lot of an imagination, maybe just a little spark of an imagination for how an eighteen year old sickness um, can be changed. You know, like. Um, she had en- enough of an imagination to come to Jesus, but I'm not even sure she knew how her life could be different. If if something has been happening in your life for 18 years, that that is like deeply woven into who you are. Mm-hmm. And so having, having a little bit of an imagination, even if it's a really open-ended imagination for how God is going to work, and then having like a patience and an urgency to bring about that newness. Um, and then in the passage... Uh, I think it's significant that Jesus spoke freedom to her and then he touched her, you know, um, there was a word and a deed happening there and it brought about her worship and her health. You have like word and flesh. There, there was a declaration and there's a follow through and it happens in a mode of direct presence and intimacy. Um, I, I think our encounters with Jesus still happen this way through an encounter with the word and through like really regular hands and feet that we recognize sometimes they're even our own hands and feet for others. Yeah. I, proximity begets compassion, doesn't it? It's there's something about seeing the need and being present to it, to witness it. That is so powerful. And I, 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 I really appreciated your insight about, her imagination and probably it not being vivid to what could happen. And isn't that the way it is? It's like music. Mm-hmm. You, I have heard somebody say it's the one thing that can get to your heart without your permission. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, it just does. We, we don't, right? we don't have, we don't have ear lids. We have eyelids, but we don't have ear lids, you know? Uh. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think healing can show up in surprising ways like that. And, and we know he is Jehovah Rapha. He's the healer, but yeah. yet, uh, we don't dehuma- dehumanize ourselves to think that we can't participate in that That's in right. some very tangible way. I think it was Bart talked about how theology should always lead to doxology. In other words, if, yeah, we're, right. if we're doing the good work of theology and we don't end up praising God, we're doing something wrong. So, you know, I'm struck by the church people of the day missing the miracle. <laughs> They're not praising God in their desire to be right. Uh, and maybe I'm reworking the same question, but is there anything else you want to touch on and what this can teach us? Well, yeah. I'd, I mean, I think awareness of God's work comes via testimony. 
And I think that's a hard thing for sophisticated modern people like us to learn how to do, to talk about unwieldy and mysterious things of God with passion and gratefulness without sounding like lunatics, you know, and sometimes you can't help it sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I've learned a lot about this with my kids in the last decade is about like swimming against this like disenchanting tide that in order to re-enchant the world, not that we're like doing anything, but rather we're learning to notice and expect and narrate like what God is already doing. And so like, I want them to have a vivid imagination for how God is working without leaning on like tired religious speech that's kind of empty. And so I've been trying to really discipline myself with a certain um, way of talking with a certain expectation. So like when they come to me with a paper cut, uh, we talk about how God will heal them and we ask God to heal them. Um, lest we forget in our forgetfulness, uh, you know, that, um, that, that that healing is somehow natural or, you know, that it's not a gift from God, no matter how minute or how normal it seems. And, and so, like, how can we expect God to arrive, to act, to intervene in big ways? Like, God forbid, if, if we want someone to be healed of cancer or after a car accident, if God hasn't been the healer all along of rug burns and paper cuts and scrapes and bruises from learning how to ride our bikes and from <laughs> self-imposed <laughs> damage we've done to ourselves. So um, that, that's one thing is just like kind of re-enchanting our normal speech um, to create an expectation. Mm. Um, in terms of like the, the you know, the passage is like, quote unquote, humiliated opponents. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's not such a bad thing. It, it feels yeah. bad in the midst of it when you are being brought down, humbled, subverted, surprised. But what if that is actually a gift? Like I, I think about the rich young ruler who um, came to Jesus and it s says that he, you know, he went away sad because he had so much, but it leaves it really open-ended. Like he, he still might have embraced that as a gift and a calling um, and just did an accurate accounting of his life, you know? And so, um, yeah, like what if, what if instead of when we find out we're wrong or when we're find out we actually missed out on what God has been doing all along, what if instead of doubling down or powering up or circling wagons or defending what if there was an expectation that, that God was also working in us being wrong? And, and then there's time and space to change our minds. There's not a whole lot of value in that. You know, like that, it'll be interesting if Elon Musk gives Twitter a edit button because we're so used to like our whole lives becoming uneditable hot takes that we can't take back. So we just like, D double down and entrench and so i don't know like well what if that is also a gift from god uh proving us wrong and not in a vicious way but in a gracious way it's not like divine gaslighting but a ways that that can make us people able to ask forgiveness because we realize that we are often wrong mm-hmm well, it seems to me it ties back into being ready, right? As, yeah, that's right. As the spirit woos us into greater maturity and to the head, Jesus, um, 
it looks like that. And um, humiliation is painful, but it's like our mutual friend, Jeff McSwain, he, I've heard him say often, life is just ongoing repentance. <laughs> I mean, yeah. every day it's like, right. oh, I got that wrong. Um, but we have one who knows what it looks like to condescend. That's right. And thanks be to God for that. We have one more passage, which is Luke chapter 14, verses 1 and 7 through 14. It's a revised common lectionary passage for proper 17 in ordinary time, which is August the 28th. Chris, read that one for us, please. Sure. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. Now he began telling a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, whenever you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by them. And the one who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. But whenever you are invited, go and take the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he will say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will have honor in the sight of all who are dining at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, whenever you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor wealthy neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you to a meal in return, and that will be your payment. But whenever you give a banquet, invite people who are poor, who have disabilities, who are limping, and people who are blind, and you will be blessed, since they will not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Hmm. The upside down kingdom, <laughs> mm -hmm. not the way we anticipate it. You know, this passage tells us that our Lord is sharing a meal with the leader of the Pharisees. And um, I just think it's one of the most profound aspects of Jesus's ministry. Um, and that is his meal sharing ministry, the intimacy uh, of it to be face to face with another. Um, what are your thoughts, Chris? And what, what does a church have to learn? When the, the church that we uh, came from that sent us to, to plant had over the years had, had done a lot of meal sharing together in the early days we had had weekly potluck and, and then that shifted to, to, you know, bi-weekly and then monthly and then <laughs> periodically. And, and, um, and, and so when we, we started Oak Church, the intent was to do weekly potluck meals um, and, and to create a culture around that. And that has been such a, a journey of learning um, and, and again, predicated on, you know, Jesus does this, so let's figure out how to do it. Uh, but it's, it's been really interesting. So, so, and it, uh, because, you know, eating that much together and we've tried to do it without a, w without a safety net, like, you know, um, at the, uh, at the other church, one of the reasons why it, it became less frequent is because people get tired and you wouldn't bring that much. And then, you know, there was always kind of like 
the potluck brigade that would like, oh no, we don't have enough food, you know, um, let's, let's call in some dominoes or, or go get some stuff from Costco. Right. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there was a ma- you know, a lot of hospitality around that impulse, but we've not done that at all. So, and we found that it's really self-regulating the potluck meal because, you know, if you have a bad week, um, you are reminded oh, shoot, I need to participate, you know, like it, kind of a, if you don't bring it, we don't eat. <laughs> and, and so we always say less with, that we are less without you. And that is mathematically true, but it is, it is no more obvious than at the table. Like uh, you learn how to accent and you learn how to account for others' gifts. You know, you learn that that person always brings mac and cheese. So I probably don't need to do that. Um, and so it's a really beautiful dynamic um life that happens around the table. And so I, uh, I think, um, I would love to, to know more detail about Jesus's meals, not just who he, he ate with, but, but what he ate and, and how those meals went and, and who provided the food. And, and, um, but I think for the local church, you know, a life around the table as an extension of the communion table, um, is is a really beautiful like culture maker and and so you you get the chance you know we do each week you get the chance to come forward to the communion table with empty open hands ready to receive from God's grace you you don't bring anything to that table and then you know 10 minutes later or so you arrive <laughs> with plenty of stuff in hand you arrive with a full instant pot to add to an armada of instant pots to try to feed <laughs> friends and neighbors and, you know, show off your new recipe or like, you know, um, figure that stuff out, you know, um, life around the table also, like it makes you like in Paul language, think of others, uh, more than yourself. Like, especially if you have friends that have that have to navigate food allergies or, um, you know, we've had to navigate, as a very potluck centric church that is so core to our culture, you know, two plus years of that not being a safe thing to do sitting across from each other in a fellowship hall. You know, we've done that with outdoor meals with prepackaged things and all the, all these different arrangements, but it's always a, a negotiation and an improvisation trying to figure out how to, how to be together. Um, I, I really love a friend here in Durham, Kendall Vanderslice, um, who's a, a dookie, also um, has a ministry called Edible Theology, and she's a a trained um, uh, a trained baker. Uh, also has a degree in food studies and theological studies, and so she is she's really putting these uh, things together about. Um, specifically about bread and dinner church and um, talks really beautifully uh, about how the, these things interact. Mm. It's a good resource. We'll put it in the show notes. And it makes me think of somebody you've already referenced, Robert Capon, oh, man. Who, uh, who loved food and loved Jesus and loved the combination. And I think he shared a cookbook. If I'm, if I'm yeah, that's right. The, the Supper of the Lamb. That's right. Yeah. I, I will say that, like, um, again, uh, an early ministry experience was that that the table also became a, a site of discipleship. Um, like we would have, you know, again, being in a place with a bunch of grad students and people passing through, we, 
and also being in the South, we would have people come to the church and they would be so game and so equipped and so expectant to sit in a, a folding chair at the time and drink deeply of a 40-minute sermon and take detailed notes. And then you'd ask them or, you know, kind of expect, invite them, hey, you, you guys are staying for potluck, right? And they, they would demur because it was so awkward for them to sit across from someone they didn't know or to eat something they weren't sure that they liked. And so it, it was, it was a, a place of deep discipleship to become the sort of people that, that could do that and that could be at a table possibly with someone that you have nothing else in common other than Jesus and the spirit that is, that is connecting you, you know? And so um, I, I don't discount that power of the table either. And I, I think that's also why some of Jesus's tables are so controversial because um, he is putting people at a table that, that don't have any reason to be together apart from him. The potluck brigade. I, I have a feeling we need to design a t-shirt and I've got a few people in mind to, to share <laughs> that with. <laughs> yeah. We're, well, we're trying to get sponsored by instant pot. That's, uh, that's key. Well, Jesus instructs the listeners to to sit at the lowly place during a feast, and of course, later in Scripture, we we see in John thirteen Jesus doing this very thing, embodying it when he he gets up quietly from dinner and washes the disciples' feet in the upper room. Um, why, why do you think it matters that we have a God revealed in Jesus who practices this, who practices what he preaches? I don't. I don't think it's just that Jesus somehow needs to be like logical and coherent, or even like non-hypocritical. I think. I think in these stories of Jesus being with people at in normal places, that Jesus is saving us in these stories. This is before the cross. This is after the incarnation. But like Jesus is saving all humanity, all creation when he feasts. And when he washes feet and when he like brushes by the shoulders of someone in the crowd or is, is touched that when Jesus is walking around Galilee or like when Jesus is a boy growing up in Nazareth, I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder here at my desk at this icon called a hidden life in Nazareth by this Ukrainian icon writer. Um, and it's like, Mary and Joseph and Jesus is like taking his first steps as a boy. And there's a, a clothes, a clothesline in the background. Like I think when Jesus is filling up diapers in Mary's home and, and all of these hidden moments that Jesus is saving us because he's bolting divinity and humanity together and creating a new humanity. It, it, so it's, I don't think it's just that Jesus is practicing what he's preaching, but he's, he's becoming familiar to us. Mm. Um, he's, he's coming close enough to people that, that, that they know what he smells like and what his hands feel like and what his voice sounds like. That's how cl- close God is to us in Jesus. That's how sensible God is. It, 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 that it's not any longer a mystery of what God is like. Like God, God is like Mary's boy. Mm. For the disciples, God is like their fishing buddy. God's like a journey, journeying storyteller who loves a good party. God's 
like a guy who isn't afraid to stick his nose in an unfair fight. You know, God, God is like someone who's been put through the ringer or is the victim of state violence or who has been lynched. God has become one of us. And, and I think that means we stand a chance to become like God, like that we're forever bolted in Christ to God. So when we read these stories, we, we just can't forget what God looks like and smells like and acts like and sounds like. There's a great uh, documentary. It's just a short film, maybe 18 minutes, called Godspeed. Mm, I love it. Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, – is it Brian Canlis? Is that his name? Yeah, but, that's uh, right. Brian and Julie in, yeah, in, Julie. Uh, in Vancouver. Yeah, and one of the things I was struck by, they were interviewing one of the the folks in um, Scotland, and he was talking about how Godspeed being the, the speed of three miles an hour, the speed yeah, of walking. Right. And he was saying that's when he became a believer, when he realized Jesus couldn't hide. Like the people knew him. The villagers knew him. That's that's, that's right. Joe and Mary's boy. <laughs> and and uh, that's powerful for us that we can't just parachute into people's lives, but it's meant to be lived face to face because we were made in the image of a God who is in face to face unity. The father and the son and i think uh, meal sharing and and all the things you're discussing here as far as taking the lowly place um that just lives into the to what reality is this is this is reality this is what it looks like it looks like jesus yeah and uh, i mean i that's living i, I live in walking distance to where we minister at the church and that I, i'm learning that in my ministry uh, my across the street neighbor uh jim is like not super church interested, but, uh, and he thinks it's hilarious that he, uh, that he knows a pastor, um, and probably hears me yell at my kids. And he thinks it's hilarious that, that I'll drink a beer with him and that he, and so like, I'll get these little offerings from Jim. That's like, you know, <laughs> um, magazine that his daughter who's way too old for him now still subscribes to and he leaves for our our girls and then like a belgian beer because that's what he likes and 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 so i think it's just that presence that has like um just connected uh to to jim and and again i'm not i'm not trying to stand in for jesus here but it, it helps me imagine that that like um both the incredibility in the credibility of, of Jesus's life in Nazareth because he was known um, because he was there. Yeah. Amen. Chris, this has been fun yeah, and I'm I so really grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful you were willing to do it, especially with, you know, as the countdown is on toward your sabbatical. So thank you for your time. And it's our tradition here on gospel reverb that our guests share prayer for our listening audience, for those who are out there ministering in the neighborhood, as you just described. Would you be willing to do that for us, please? I'd love to. Uh, Lord Jesus, help us be awake and attentive to your presence in our midst. Help us be receptive and generous to all the gifts that you give us. Help us be invitational and expectant um, as you show up in the midst of the least, the last, the lost, the littlest, and the closest to death. And help us feast with you um, and look forward to feasting with you for eternity. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. 
thank you for being a guest of Gospel Reverb. If you like what you heard, give us a high rating and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. Share this episode with a friend. It really does help us get the word out as we are just getting started. Join us next month for a new show and insights from the RCL. Until then, peace be with you.